turn to your Bibles, first chapter, first Peter. We will read again verses thirteen through sixteen. Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Last week, we saw that we came to a transitional segment in this epistle with the word, therefore which signified that for the first 12 verses, Peter had not told us to do anything. He just described God's work upon us, which is the essence of Christianity. Then, he says, therefore, based upon all this, gird your mind for action, and the main verb last week, hopefully. And we see the second main verb and the second commandment. Be holy in verse 15. These two commandments are not only transitional for this letter, but they are foundational to what real Christianity is. It is so easy to start doing church and forget the core of what everything is rooted in. It is these two commandments. Or as Jesus says, it's all summed up in love God with your heart. That is hope fully. And love your neighbor as yourself. That is in your actions and your attitudes and your behaviors towards others. It means be holy. Okay. Get my thoughts back here. Okay. Let's look at the text then first. Real quickly and look at the structure of the text. Verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lust which are yours and ignorance. But now the main point, the positive that he says, is verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy. That's the main thing he says to us. But now he says that with the backdrop in the context of pitting verse 14 against verse 15. Don't do this, but do this. And then verse 16 is his foundation that he grounds his command to be holy. He sees it's written a number of times in Leviticus. It's his main text that he is unfolding where God said, Be holy, for I am holy. And his command flows out of that. So in understanding, what do you mean, Peter? How are we going to be holy like God is holy? The way to see what he's saying in this text is to compare verse 14 with verse 15. That's his context. But before we do that, I just want to talk about the word holy for a minute. The Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, comes from the root kad, which means to cut, to sever, break apart. The word holiness is not necessarily religious. Of course, biblically, it takes on that meaning. God calls Himself holy. The idea of being holy or making something holy in the Old Testament and into the New Testament with the word hagioi or hagios, 
to be holy. Same word we get the word sanctification, to sanctify, to live separate, or when Paul calls the Christians saints, it's all from that same, same root. It essentially means being separated from something and being separated unto something. Biblically, religiously, it is being separated from that which is profane or mundane and worldly or everyday or sinful or defiled and being separated unto God Himself. For instance, he's God says, keep the Sabbath holy. The Sabbath is a holy day. It's not like the other six. It's separate from them and it is to be separated in your life unto me. Or when he says in the law, the priests are holy unto the Lord. He means they are taken out, they are separated from everyday life to do something specifically separated unto my work in the temple. When God sanctifies or makes holy particular inanimate objects to use in worship in the temple. They are holy to Him in that they take a big bowl and say it's separated for the washing of the priest, etc., etc. It's holy. And of course, God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel. And when we look at our text, Peter modifies the commandment of be holy. He modifies it by saying, as the Holy One who called you. So he doesn't just say be holy. He says, look, be holy in this context. As God is holy. So what does it mean for God to be holy? Well, in His foundation, I think it means God is utterly separated from all that is sinful, profane, etc. Utterly unto Himself. Away from, transcendent from creation, and towards to Himself is the core of His holiness. He's very different. This is a place where one could stop and spend ten weeks just unfolding that by talking about the attributes of God, His incommunicable attributes, those things about Him that human beings will not become and are never to become like His omnipotence and His omniscience and His eternality etc. And then his communicable attributes like holiness and like love and like righteousness. All of those things together are the essence of his uniqueness. His holiness. But we're not going to spend ten weeks. But I'm going to try to boil it down real quickly. But you know, before I do that, Wednesday night I'm going to put this in somewhat of a context and why it is very important. Who are you when I contemplate you, God, and I look to you, as Peter says, as the Holy One who called me? What do I see? What does that mean? I think is so important. Or we just could end up being like the people that used to tell me when they were kids, they went to church three, four times a week, and every week they repented and became a Christian again because they went to the movies and they chewed gum. They used to tell me this because those were laws and rules that says you were being unholy. 
in and of themselves. But Wednesday night, Teresa and I at her house on New Year's night, the sugar bowl was getting pretty boring and I was flipping back and forth and she got cable to Twilight Zone Marathon. And lo and behold, the episode came on to serve man. And in that episode, these aliens come down in spaceships all over the world in France, Soviet Union, China, and at the UN in New York while they're meeting. And all these spaceships and these big tall beans with weird looking heads come down and finally one of the representatives comes to the UN to talk to the world and to the nations. What are you doing here? What are you about? And he essentially is telling them, we are ten times more bright than you are. You guys have war, you have poverty, you have starvation. We're here to help you. And I remember the Soviet, bald Soviet guy, because each nation is getting a chance to answer, how do we know you don't have any ulterior motives? Good question. And a guy had a he's very bright, tremendous answer. You just watch and see. And as it unfolds, they watched and they saw. They transformed the world. There was no more poverty. They have little substances to put into your soil and anywhere you can grow anything you want. War was no more. They even used the term in here, I guess the millennium has come. Now, the other thing going on here is when that representative of these aliens, I forget what they called him, he left a book and it sat there and he took off in the UN. Of course, we got a hold of it. Our CIA and the department that is supposed to decode language that they don't know was working on it. What does this thing really say? What are they about? In the middle of the show, finally, they couldn't decode what it was saying inside, but... They decoded the title, and it said, To Serve Man. And of course, makes sense, because everyone is being persuaded that these people are really here just because they know better, and they are better than we are, and they want to impart that to us. And during the process, more and more as they gained trust, more and more humans were jumping on their spacecrafts, getting their names on lists to take 10-year vacations, etc., and go to their place and just see it. And the main decoder guy also was persuaded. He didn't really even care if they found out it was in a book. He knew it was in a book. It's about them and their desire to help us and to serve us. And of course, at the end, I know I shouldn't have spent 30 minutes, but at the end, while the main decoder guy is jumping on, it's his turn, he's got his ticket, He's going up the steps, those little spaceships, and how's he going to close it? And, and one of his uh, workmates, she comes running, we decoded the book! Wait! It's a cookbook! And it was too late, of course, because they slammed the door on him. Motives are everything. That is not what God is like. That is the opposite of His holiness. And so we say God is holy. He has a book. It says, Isaiah 64.4, to serve man. Never has anyone seen God like you, God of Israel, who works, serves on behalf of those who wait for Him. But He really wants to serve any. Why? Because He is holy. The essence of His holiness is the opposite of these aliens. They were parasites 
They were hungry. They were desperate to go outside of themselves, outside of their solar system, outside of their galaxies, to another place in order to feed themselves. God isn't like that because He is by nature holy. He is by nature self-sufficient without any needs outside of Himself. He is infinitely and gloriously contented and happy. That's why if we talked, in, as systematic theologians would do, about the attributes of God, they would be wrapped up into that one thing. The attributes of God say that He is absolutely needless. He is self-sufficient. Because why? He is omnipotent. He is omniscient, all-knowing and all-wise. He could be nothing else than utterly and gloriously happy. Because to contemplate that the one who has all power, who can do and act and move in any way he so chose, any way that his omniscience and wisdom and knowledge guided him to act, is, would be an absurd thought to think that he would act from his wisdom and from his knowledge internally and or externally in such a way that would cause himself to be less than infinitely and eternally gloriously happy and contented. And so, what is it about God? What is it about His nature? What is it that He must be in His activity of the Godhead doing in order to be infinitely and gloriously happy? He must be loving, enjoying, absorbing, being thrilled with whatever it is that is most glorious, most valuable, most enjoyable, which happens to be Himself. For Him to act and to put anything up above that which is most valuable, which is Himself, would be idolatrous. And that's why the Bible presents God as He is, as a trinity, as we sing here, holy trinity. Because God has, by His nature, never been anything less than always beholding Himself as a subject would an object. When we talk about the Holy Trinity, that's what we mean by persons. It is a subject-object relationship. Not necessarily two people walking around. And there is a subject-object. There is the Father beholding, seeing, the reflection or the exact image of Himself so completely and undistortedly that itself stands forth as the second person of the Trinity. And the Father's joy and happiness and completeness is in the joy He has eternally had in the second person, in the second person, in the Father. And that very dynamic of eternal, omnipotent love and joy and fullness and delight is itself standing forth because it can do no other if He is omnipotent as the third person of the Trinity. He is absolutely needless. It would be a horrible thought to think otherwise. Why did He create us? Are we His cattle? To go into His recipe book, no, He is utterly and absolutely holy. Then He creates. Why? In order not to get, as those twilight zone beings, 
yet in order to overflow with His eternal joy that He already has. Because it is one thing to sit down and to enjoy something that is awesome by yourself, if you can say it that way. It is another thing to say, Honey, you got to taste this. It's delicious. Or, I saw the best movie. When best movie I ever saw in my life came out a couple years ago. She knows. I couldn't help but just to please go see. Life is beautiful. Because there is a joy. Not a joy you don't already have. But an overflowing of the joy you already have in something that is felt and experienced and enjoyed all the more by sharing it with others. So we're here. He creates. He's holy. Let me just bring in a couple of terms besides holiness that are almost overlapping, but they're different nuances of this. Holiness, glory, and God's righteousness. His holiness is in his... his say it this way. It is his utterly separateness. Or he is transcendent. The God of creation, the God of the Bible, is a transcendent God. It's very different than the New Age, Hinduism type, everything's God, we're all God, you can't distinguish God from creation. Yes, you can. He is transcendent, above and beyond and outside of it. He is not creation. He is ever-present, yes, but He is other, utterly unique. That's the essence of His holiness. When we talk about the glory of God, or the earth, Holy, 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 Isaiah 6 3 says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Gl- glory used in that sense in the Bible is the essence of all we just talked about, of His holiness shining, going outward, outside the Trinity in creation. Because the word glory, the word doxa in Greek, is the word for radiance, like you don't usually hardly ever look straight at the sun, maybe at sunset, but not when it's high noon. But you feel the heat of it. That's the glory of the sun. You can see the light of it, the rays of it. That is, you cannot disconnect it from the essence of the sun. It is the beaming out of it. That's what the Bible means by God extending and going outward in His glory. When we talk about the righteousness of God, it means that God in everything that He does and that He wills, He always wills in accord with what is right. And He is the standard of what is right. In which means, therefore, He must always will and act in such a way that He is putting first things first that he is valuing that which is most valuable above all lesser values, which happens to be himself. Which means he must therefore always act and move and do in such a way that his glory is of preeminence. He is radically holy, separated unto himself, to say it this way. He is radically God-centered. For him to act in a way where he was not first and foremost upholding his glory would be unrighteous. He could not and would not do like we frail, sinful humans do. Be moved by the pity of another person. God to be moved, well, I know they've sinned and they're hurting for it. So I will disregard justice. 
and I will disregard my holiness and I will just let bygones be bygones and sweep them under the rug. For God to do that would be sinful because He would value something above Himself. The feelings of a creature. He cannot. He will not. It is a big problem. That's why Paul saw it as a huge problem in Romans chapter 3 when he talked about propitiation on the cross. God was dealing with an ostensible or an apparent problem that God appeared to be unjust in forgiving and not wiping out sinful people. And so he said he did this in order that he may be just, seem to be just, and at the same time justify, forgive believers sinful people. But again, even in His forgiving, it is His justice that is first, is foremost. His glory is first and foremost in upholding it. So, now back to the text. He says, As God is holy, holy other unto Himself, you, believer, be holy also in the way you live, in all your behavior or your conduct. What does he mean? Assuming that what I said is an accurate representation of the holiness of God, what does it mean for me to wake up and to endeavor to be holy like God is holy? Does it mean that I am to endeavor to be as unique and as glorious as God is glorious? Obviously not. I think it just has to mean as God is utterly holy, God-centered, loving and delighting in the essence of His being in goodness and righteousness, so you too, believer, do that! Love and glory in and enjoy and desire that which is most desirable, which is God Himself. For God to worship, all what I said could be summed up in the word worship. Worship means what you look to to find your happiness, your satisfaction, your delight. For God to worship Himself is the essence of righteousness. For men or women to worship themselves is the essence of sin. For men and women to worship God as God worships God, to be holy as God is holy, is the essence of righteousness. Now, Peter then, in this text, shows little nuances on how this happens in our lives by comparing verse 14 with verse 15. But let's look at a few of the pieces. First, though, in verse 15, he says, But like the Holy One who called you, you be holy also yourselves in all your behavior. He could have said, Like God is holy, be holy yourselves. He didn't. He used this little phrase here to describe God. And he does it purposefully. When we read the Bible, we should look and say, wait a minute, why, why does he do that? 
He said, like the Holy One who called you. Evidently, the idea of God calling me is a key to understanding what He's talking about. And we can see from the broader context of the first chapter of what He means as He started off with your Christian life started when God caused you to be born again to a living hope where God is the one who initiated and produced new desires within you. In the week I taught on that text, I also took us to Romans chapter 8 where Paul uses this word call when he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. There's holiness working out or sanctification, a process in our life. And whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And I argued that called there can mean nothing other than the internal effectual call that everyone he calls actually come to saving faith because God produces something in them. New desires because he changed is the core and the essence of their being. How? By bringing Himself to them. The impartation of the Holy Spirit. The regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that at its root changes desires. The life of holiness, sanctification, the process, the battle, the fight, that's not justification, that is done. Initial faith over all yours, forever forgiven, Christ's righteousness, yours to every believer. Sanctification, then, is a separate word and a separate theology, and they need to be distinct, working it out in your life. It begins at new birth because of the new desires. Now they start to see change. That's how the Bible and how Peter is putting it. The root of behavior Holy behavior is in new, not former, but new desires. Desire at its core for God. Loving God. And the way that these two, having called you to Himself, actually the second one, causing us to be children. At the beginning of verse 14, he says, as obedient children, that calling produces or causes us to be God's children in a way that we were not God's children before. If you look back up to verse 2, Peter said, God chose us According to his foreknowledge, was the first way he modified chosen, elected us. God did it according to his foreknowledge. And then secondly, look, by the sanctification of the Spirit. Same root of holiness. The Spirit coming, separating us from our old life. Raising us from the dead. Now look at the third one. He elected us unto obedience to Jesus Christ. Because the desires in sanctification are changed which start 
to change even in this life here and there behaviors and actions but they don't just flow out of I don't eat or chew or go to movies they flow out of an overwhelming more powerful desire than the former one. And so those two things working together then in this context, you've been called or been called and made His children, which ultimately produces obedience. How? Because a person who is a Christian, who has been born again or become a child of God, that he's talking to about being holy, have been called of God, what has happened is they do not see the world nor their sinful desires in the same way they saw before their conversion to Christ. Now, in other words, say it this way according to the text, they don't see the desires that they still have in the same light of ignorance that they once did. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, New American says. It's epithumia. It is the word, should be translated either lust, which means strong desires. So let's use the word desire here. It is the former, strong, alluring desires. How come? New knowledge has come in that causes you to see those still former lusts differently than you do now. And thus, to believers who have been called of God, it means that they are now able to actually obey the command to not be conformed in their lifestyle by those former lusts. The lifestyle, your daily battle of sanctification of the Christian life is really different than the life that is lived merely on the former godless desires. The structure of this text is telling us that obedience to God, holiness in God, is the opposite of doing what our remaining sinful natures incline us to do. Because we know better. So there's a battle. What we know better is the truth that is coming in and replacing the former ignorance. And that's what leads to new desires. Try an illustration. You guys like last week's. Picture, this would be cruel, but picture some psychological study for some reason. A little baby, human baby, born. They never want the baby to see anything outside this big metal box. And inside it's just a bland gray. Baby lives, they feed it, eats, grows up, 25 years old. Slowly now, over the last two years, they have been slipping in with the food. Five-year-old's finger painting. My kid just made one the other day. With color. Light in there. 
He sees it. It's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. And if you ask him, do you want some more finger paintings today to behold? Yes. Do you want to see the Grand Canyon though instead? No. How come he doesn't have any clue what the Grand Canyon is? He knows what finger paintings are and they are desirable. You truck that box he lives in to the Grand Canyon, place it, it's on the rim, and somehow now they bore out a hole and let him look out. His life has changed. The former overwhelming desires for the beauty that he thought was bringing him real joy and happiness and looking at finger paintings is former compared to his new knowledge. He's not ignorant anymore of the Grand Canyon. He has tasted, he has seen, he has beheld something far superior. That's the essence of the Christian life. And that is the core of sanctification and working it out in holiness in the Christian life. And so the thing that we know more than anything that is the difference that is replacing the former ignorance, lack of knowledge, is not merely theological confessions, but it is God Himself that we see with the eyes of the heart through the truth of theology. And that is what breaks the back of the former desires. That is the battle of them. Before, desires of making money, sexual sins, worship of the creature in all its various ways, we just follow. Ephesians 2. We all lived in the lust of the flesh. After those desires are still there. Yet, another principle is there too. We have seen the Grand Canyon. And now the battle is on. And the main way to fight the battle, as we saw last week, is in the verse previous in verse 13, by girding up the loins of your mind with truth, continually beholding the truth, you're going to start to forget the Grand Canyon and it becomes fuzzy and it becomes muddy. To feed it, just flip over really quickly. We'll get there in a few weeks. But look at chapter 2, the first three verses. Again, I think Peter's It's saying the same thing that I just said. Girding the loins of the mind is the key. He says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now just stop. Be holy. These actions of behavior and of feelings are the opposite of being holy. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word. He doesn't mean light stuff here like the book of Hebrews does. You still drink a mixture. He doesn't mean that. He just means it's your sustenance. It's a baby's sustenance. It's mommy's breath. And the milk that comes forth, so is the Christian's 
feed, feed, long, or the word for long there is the word desire. It's the same word in the Greek of the Greek Old Testament of the deer panting for the water brook. Desire the water brook. Desire the pure milk of the word. Why? So that you may grow at sanctification. That you may be holy in your behavior. That you may grow in respect or unto salvation. In verse 3, since you have seen the grand canyon. You have overwhelming desires since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It is in this text the key to behavior is rooted in desire. All behavior starts from desire. Chocolate or vanilla? You choose one, you act. Should I slander and hold grudging things? You choose to or you choose to obey God and let His vengeance, if it need be, take care of it and hand it to Him. The point is, at what at that moment in battle of sin, of the former desires, the way to win it is to feed our souls with the Word that produces Godward and godly and obedient desires. That's essentially the battle of the fight of faith. It is... You can see it with the word of ignorance. Truth coming in and battling and replacing lack of truth, former ignorance, not just cognitively, but experientially, the tasting, etc., the heart, the knowing of God, which produces new desires and from which flow obedience as children or holy behavior. Now, as we were talking the Johns and I yesterday, I think, oh, the good thing about it is that Peter says, do this and don't give in and live a lifestyle continuously after the former desire. It says to me, wow, Peter must have had them too. And all Christians have them. So when you battle with sin and you know there's former desires that are still with you, that's biblical theology. And that's good to know. Say, okay, but there's hope. We're all in this battle. And again, cry out. Feed yourself with the Word. Pray today. And God, help sanctify me and repent daily. But the other main thing of this passage is telling us, Peter's saying it, just like Paul says it in the book of Romans when he gets into chapter 6, is that in Christianity it's not just a club and a religion. It is an act of God. And at the core of it, of the Holy Spirit's power of regenerating and starting it all off and continually working on us in sanctification, there is a significant break with the former desires that had happened by placing in new desires. So we can actually get onto the road. We can actually have victories over sinful desire. John, what's coming up? Let me just close in reading First John chapter 5. 
this same dynamic, it is born in the new desires which are produced by the Spirit. All who are of the Spirit of God are the children of God as obedient children. Listen how the Apostle John says in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Whoever believes, really believes, that Jesus Christ is born... Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that person, it is evident that they have been born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. And by this we know that we are the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. And in verse 4, he gives a reason why. He gives an argument. He says, for... This is the reason why. Because whatever is born of God, which whatever has been regenerated by God's Holy Spirit power, producing a living hope and a new vision and new desires, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And that's why commandments of morality and living out horizontally and being holy in all your behavior are not burdensome to the extent that you're tapped in to the new desires. Father, this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, 2,000 years later, as we once again obey His command because we are His, to partake in community of this supper, the body, the bread which is His body, and the wine which is His blood. That Father, let us know at the core and the foundation of our life in holiness is because of this new covenant worked in the life and in the death of Jesus. Then we're going to sing Holy, Holy, Holy. I'm going to pass out the elements.